Father, we want to remember in these moments what we heard last week, that your word is powerful and that you yourself are that power and that there's nothing we can do to make your word more convincing or more attractive than your Holy Spirit can. So, Lord, right now I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would cause your word to come alive in us. Lord, for those of us here who have been born again, who are alive to you, I pray that this part of your word would, would be rich and would that we would hear what you are saying here in a way that causes our worship to be more reflective of, of the worship that you seek. And Father, I would ask if there's anyone here today who does not know you, that through your word, the lordship of Jesus and the beauty of his cross would make a worshiper of them, even today. Lord, use your word, please, to come and find the worshipers that you seek. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I have a cold this morning. That's what you get when you preach a sermon on weakness, uh, as you get sick. And so uh, don't mind me as I uh, have the sniffles a little bit here. If I were to ask us why we gathered this morning, my guess is that at least a few of us would answer for worship. If I was to ask us, what did we just do together? My guess is that a few of us would answer worship. That's what we just did. If I were to ask, what is this whole gathering this morning called? My guess is at least a few of us would say, well, it's, it's a worship service. But what if we were to ask some more specific questions like, what is worship? Or what does worship include? Or what should worship feel like? What should it look like? Or maybe more importantly, where should we find our answers on how we should worship? If we were to ask those kinds of questions, I wonder if our answers might start to look a little different from each other. It's a little bit of personal background here, just to get out of the way. I've been involved in Sunday morning worship for most of my life. My very first Sunday morning role when I was 10 was doing overheads at the church where we attended. Now, some of you are old enough to remember before computer projectors and after hymn books, there was this sort of netherworld where we had a box with a light and some mirrors and it shone on a screen and we printed words on kind of pieces of paper that were clear plastic called transparencies and someone had to slide them on and off. And if you were really good, you would lift them on and off. So they sort of blurred in and out. How many of you did that job? Yeah, there's, yeah there we go. There we go. Um, and I did that a lot. Um, for, for a number of years. And, and what that gave me was a vantage point 
on the platform because we had to sit up here surrounded by the band watching them do their thing and looking out at the congregation and watching them respond week after week and I I started paying attention to to some of these things I, I picked up the guitar when I was 13 and over the next number of years I helped lead the music part of worship in all kinds of churches all different sizes all different denominations I made a list and I won't bore you with it um a bunch of camps, seniors' homes thrown in for good measure. I've gotten to work with numbers of worship leaders, worship pastors, music directors, and I've talked to all kinds of people over these years about worship and music and singing and, and everything that's connected to that. Here's, here's what my experience, and this granted is just my experience, but here's what my experience tells me is that when it comes to answering the big questions about worship, many Christians haven't started with the Bible. Many Christians have not started by asking what has God told us about worship and then, and then worked their way out from there. Instead, in my experience, many Christians have had their understanding of worship simply shaped by the songs that they like singing or the, the trends in, in church culture that, that they got used to. And their whole approach to worship is shaped more by the, the preferences that they've developed over the years, opposed to what God has told us in his word. And, and depending on what age you are this morning, you might think I'm talking about certain age groups here. And, and it's true. I've met plenty of young folks whose theology of worship is only as deep as the latest song, the latest worship song that's burning up the charts. Okay? Their, their theology of worship is just defined by whatever song is popular, and that's it. On the other hand, over the years, I've interacted with plenty of, of older folks, plenty of senior folks, who prefer the old hymns, not for biblical reasons, but simply because it's familiar to them, and they like the feeling of something familiar. They like how the old hymns make them feel. I remember talking to one couple and they said, if I get to heaven and there's a screen, I'm leaving. And, and, and as I talked to them a little bit more, the sense was not that they didn't like the words of the newer songs. They just loved what was familiar to them. And I wonder how true that is for all ages. Many churches have been through the worship wars. And I just wonder how many battles in those wars have been fought not over what is what has God said to us, but have simply been squabbles over competing preferences, competing opinions. And, it, and if that's true, and I, I might be wrong here, but if that's true, isn't that kind of backwards? Sh shouldn't we start any conversation about anything, and particularly anything related? If, if God has addressed something, shouldn't we start by listening to what he has to say? Now, to my knowledge, EBC has not had any worship wars, at least not in recent history. I've heard some stories from decades ago, but I, 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 don't, I don't think EBC in recent history has had any worship wars. But, but here we are in a series on the Psalms. And the Psalms are about many things. And one of those things is worship. The Psalms were Israel's songbook. And so as we thought about, we're now at the end of our, of our third summer in the Psalms. 
and there's 150, so we'll be coming back to these every probably every couple of years. But as as the elders and I talked, it seemed good that we would take the last four weeks of this summer series to focus on worship. We want to make sure that what we're doing here at EBC isn't based on a consensus of our opinions and preferences. We want to make sure that we're allowing God through his word to shape our worship. And so that's what we're going to do today and, and, and then for the next three weeks. So today we're starting with a general look on worship as we look at this song of praise known as Psalm 33. This psalm, in broad strokes, paints a big picture of the kind of worship that God seeks. And then over the next three weeks, we're going to fill in the picture some more. And after that, we're not going to have this worship thing completely figured out and we'll have nothing more to learn. Of course not. But I think we'll have looked at a few truths that that are important that that, that we can build on as we continue growing together as a church and and seeking to offer God the worship that, that he seeks. So let's look, for starters, at the outline of Psalm 33. Uh, just broad strokes, what's the, what's the big picture of, this, of the psalm? And looking at, at its structures is helpful. Um, we want to notice how first Psalm 33 begins with a call to worship. And, and at least five different times, the first three verses call God's people to worship him. I mean, these are actually commands, and yet, and yet, it's helpful to, to think of them as, a, as calls to worship. So look at the first, first three verses and, and look at these five, depending how you count them, five different calls to worship. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Okay, five calls to worship. Then in verse 4, we're given a, not just A, but we start, to be, we start to see causes for worship. In other words, reasons for worship. And we see in verse, verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright and his work is done in faithfulness. In other words, worship God and here's why. And then when we get into verse 8, we find a, a renewed call to worship. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And then in verse 9, we see the word for again. And then we see more causes or reasons for worship. Worship God, here's why. Worship God, here's why. That's the basic way that the psalm works. And then the psalm finishes, verses 20 to 22, with a response to everything that we've just heard about God. So in in verses 20 to 22, this is where the worshiper, the worshiping community, responds to the call to worship and to all of these causes to worship by expressing worship to the Lord through trust, confidence in him. So that's the big picture. That's the big structure. And there's a lot more that we want to see. And the way way that we're going to take a bit of a deeper dive into these truths that we want to see is we're going to ask four big questions about worship that this psalm is going to answer for us. So we've seen the big structure. Now we're going to ask four big questions. First, we want to ask who should worship? I wonder if that's a question you've asked before. Who are the people whom God seeks to worship him? Well, 
What does Psalm 33 verse 1 tell us? Who are the people that should worship the Lord? The answer is the righteous. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. This psalm calls the righteous to worship. And as as the rest of verse 1 says, there's nothing better, there's nothing more fitting for the righteous to do than to praise the Lord. That's the sense of praise befits the upright. There's nothing better for the upright to do than to praise God. Now, the opposite point is reflected not in Psalm 33, but we know in in, in prophecies like in Isaiah chapter 1 and Amos chapter 5, God tells the people of Israel that he hates it when wicked people pretend to worship him. When they come to offer their sacrifices, bring their gifts, whatever, when their hearts have been like far away from him and still are far away from him, God hates it. The worship that God seeks is worship that comes from a heart and from a whole life that is bent towards honoring him. Now, we need to just understand that these words righteous and upright are not talking about perfect people. People who never sin. In the old covenant, the righteous and the upright were people whose lives were marked by covenant faithfulness. And in that covenant, it was not about being perfect. It was about obeying the Lord. And when you sinned, there was provision through sacrifices to be forgiven. And so the righteous and the upright were those whose lives were marked by faithfulness to God. And then when they sinned and when the regular offerings were there, trusting God to atone for their sin through those offerings. In the new covenant, we know our perfect sacrifice is Christ who has paid for all of our sins with his very life and has robed us in his righteousness. And we know that when we are righteous in Christ, our hearts seek to live for him and our hearts seek to please him. The gift of a righteous status, justification, leads to a righteous life, sanctification. So God is not honored by people who ignore him for six days of the week and hope that a few songs on Sunday morning are going to keep him happy. God is honored by the worship of his redeemed people who know that they're only righteous through Christ and because of that, seek to honor the Lord with righteous lives. And God is seeking these kinds of worshipers from from every nation on the earth. Verse 8 Remember, this is this renewed call to worship. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Here's here's the truth. God deserves the whole life worship of everything that breathes, right? God deserves the worship of everybody. And here's the wonderful thing is that through the gospel, God is creating worshipers from every tribe, language, people, and nation. This is why we bring the gospel to all the peoples of the earth so that God might receive the worship that he deserves from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Missions exists because worship doesn't, as John Piper is so helpfully summed up. So who should worship God? Well, redeemed people made righteous in Christ who by the power of the Spirit are living to honor and obey him in all things from every nation on earth. Second question, what does worship involve? 
What does it look like to worship the Lord? We've already seen some of the answers. What have we seen? Worship involves a whole life that's, that seeks the Lord and is marked by righteousness as a result. But that life of honoring the Lord bubbles up and, and reaches its peak in particular expressions of worship that this psalm describes. So what does it look like to worship the Lord? Well, for starters, it looks like shouting. That's the first word in verse 33. One Bible dictionary defines this word as a loud, enthusiastic, and joyful shout. Verse 3 also speaks about loud shouts. Now that time it's from a, a different Hebrew word that comes more from the idea of a war cry. And that leads some interpreters to guess that the background of Psalm 33 is, is victory and deliverance over their enemies. That's why they're singing a new song. Because God has done something new for them, delivering them from their enemies. And they're shouting in joy and in victory. Uh, God wants his people to worship him with some volume. Verse 1 also uses the word praise to describe what we should bring to God. Praise befits the upright. Now, praise is one of those words that we have to think about what it means. Because I think in, in the last number of years, praise has often been taken to refer to a particular style of music. I think there's, there's people who think, you know, worship is like the slow stuff where you close your eyes and sway. And praise is like the loud stuff where you open your eyes and move around. Okay? That's, just, that's just not a biblical distinction. The, the basic meaning of praise in the Bible is just saying good things about someone. It's just what it means. So again, that Hebrew dictionary that I was using defines praise as an expression of appreciation and a response to good qualities. That's what it means. So someone cooks you a good meal and you go, man, that was great. That's praise. And you should say that if someone cooks you a good meal. Praising God involves describing who he is, what he's done, and then responding to that in a way that gives God honor. Saying good things about him that he deserves to have said about him. Worship also involves giving thanks. Verse 2 describes that. Uh, in, in, uh, in verse 2, give thanks to the Lord. Now again, we need to think about this word because in Hebrew, the word thanks doesn't necessarily mean what it means in English. In English, you can be thankful for something from someone and then you can just kind of like ignore them because what you're thankful for is the thing. In, in Hebrew, the idea of thoughtful acknowledgement. Thoughtful acknowledgement. So thanks has to do with thoughtfully acknowledging a person and what they've done and who they are. So you see that, you know, thanking God and praising God are, are really connected. The, the, in Hebrew, there's not even a word to say, thanks for that thing, and now I'm going to forget about you. You just can't even do that. Thoughtful acknowledgement. In verse 2, we also begin to see worship involves music. We're to give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, which is like a small harp, not a person who doesn't tell the truth, but a small harp, hand handheld portable instrument. Verse 2 goes on to say, make melody to him. And verse 3 says, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Humans are wired 
to sing music. For as long as we've been on the earth, we've sung. It's interesting. There's some anthropologists who aren't working from a biblical perspective, and, and they've suggested that humans actually sung before we spoke, which is kind of a neat idea. Before the advent of, of recording technology, everybody sung. It was normal for people to sing. That's what you'd like do on an evening instead of like watching TV is you'd sit down and you'd sing together. And uh, so those cultures who still preserve that tradition through the fine art of karaoke should, should keep it up. It's important. It was actually one of the statements when, when, the, when the phonograph, like the early records were released, someone made a comment that they feared that this was going to professionalize singing, to take singing away from the people and bring it into the realm of the select few professionals. That's kind of happened, right? And, and, and that's unfortunate. Humans are wired to sing. Humans are wired for music. And even today, if you turn on the radio, you'll hear people singing about the things that are most important to them. That's what we do. And so the Psalms are full of calls that we would use this gift of music and song to express our worship to God. Now, we're going to spend a whole week. Next week, we're looking at Psalm 150, and we're going to spend the whole week, the whole, sorry, the whole sermon, thinking about the role of music in worship and some of the dynamics there we want to think about. So we're not going to say a whole lot more except just to see it's there. And it's not all. Verse 8 shows us a proper response to God also involves inward realities like fear and awe. So again, it's not just what we do outside is what's going on on the inside. Trembling before God, before his greatness. <clears throat> Down to verse 20, we also see a response to God involves waiting on him. Waiting is a, is a posture of active trust as we wait for God to keep his promises. Verse 21 fleshes this out more. We trust in his holy name. Verse 22, we hope in you. God is honored as his people wait, trust, and hope in him to keep his promises. So here's what we can see so far as we take these things together. Worship involves a life of following, fearing, and trusting the Lord, which expresses itself in loud, vocal, musical praise that thoughtfully acknowledges who God is and what he's done. And I'll say that again. And if you want to get that exact thing, it'll, the manuscript will be on the website later. But worship involves a life of following, fearing, and trusting the Lord, which expresses itself in loud, vocal, musical praise that thoughtfully acknowledges who God is and what God has done. So that's what, at least according to Psalm 33, that's some of what worship involves. And I want to get to our third question. Why should we worship? And this is the most important one. And the reason I say it's the most important one is because this is where Psalm 33 actually spends most of its time. Verse 4 opens with the word for. And from verses 4 to 7, and then from verses 9 to 19, we see reason after reason after reason after reason for why God is to be praised. Verses 4 and 5 are like the summary of the whole section. For, here's why God should be praised, the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice these, these verses are alternating between who God is and what he's done. 
His word is upright. He loves righteousness and justice. And here's what he's done. All his work is done in faithfulness. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. What God does is a reflection of who he is. Everything he does, he does out of his steadfast, reliable faithfulness such that the whole world, everywhere you go, what are you seeing? You are seeing the steadfast, covenant-keeping love of the Lord. For example, keeping his covenant to Noah, that the, the covenant through Noah, that seasons would follow one after another without interruption. The earth is full of the steadfast, covenant-keeping love of the Lord. Every new day, every changing season, every animal, every plant, every person is a witness to this God. Now, we could stop right there and just spend a whole bunch of time unpacking verses 4 and 5. But that's actually what the rest of the psalm does for us. The rest of the psalm is actually unpacking these truths and showing us what, what, what they look like as we flesh them out some more. So let's, let's follow along. Verse 6 speaks about God's glory in creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God makes things with his words. Can you do that? Your words are powerful. You can hurt people. You can help people. You can encourage people. You can get things done. If you're a particularly powerful person, like the president of a country or the CEO of a big company, you can get a lot done with words. You can make billions of dollars appear or disappear with a tweet on Twitter or X, as it's called these days. Our words are powerful, but they're not this powerful. The most powerful person on earth can't make a single star just with words, let alone billions of galaxies full of billions of stars. Who else do you know that can, can do that? None of us can do verse 9 where we simply speak and it comes to be. We command and it stands firm, just like that. Who can do that? A couple of weeks ago, Amy and I were out on our deck and a bright orange moon was rising over the field to the east and the sky was bright with stars and the northern lights were dancing in all directions and it just, it just felt magical. And my soul is stirred to know that God made all of that using nothing but words. He just speaks. And I want to go on about all the cool things in astronomy and how far away some of these things are. And it's just, I mean, worship God by going onto the NASA website and looking up pictures from Hubble and the James Webb Space Telescope and just think, I know who made that, and he did it just with words. Not only does God's word rule over the galaxies, God's word rules over the forces of nature here on earth. Verse 7 says, He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. See, we can fly everywhere these days. We can just take a, a plane over the oceans, which has caused us to kind of forget how big and fearsome and unpredictable and uncontrollable the oceans are. My, my grandparents were once, as they emigrated from, from Holland and then, and then made a trip back, they were once caught in a storm at sea. It was so terrifying. It left a mark on them for years. And to ancient Israel, the sea represented everything dark, chaotic, dangerous. But God is so powerful that to him, the oceans are just like bottles on his shelf. Right? He just puts them in storehouses. 
He proved that in creation. He divided the waters. He proved that in the flood, in the parting of the Red Sea. He proved that when Jesus walked across the waters like they were nothing. And again and again, God has shown God has shown us that he is way more powerful than the things that are way too powerful for us. That's the point of this. God is the king of creation. He deserves our worship. Not only is God king of creation, starting in verse 10, we see God's the king of history. These are causes for worship. He's the king of history. He rules over everything that happens on this world that he's made. That includes people Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. God decides what to do with the oceans, and God decides what to do with the plans of people. People make their plans. Nations scheme, but in the end, what happens is what God wants to happen. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Whatever God wants to happen is what happens. Whatever he has planned is what will stand forever. This is why James tells us not to boast about our great plans. Oh, I'm going to go here and do this and that. He says, that's, that's arrogant boasting. James 4.15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Because God is sovereign. That's what we mean when we say God is sovereign. It means he's the king and he rules over the affairs of people, including our own. He does what he wants, when he wants, and nobody can get in his way. Nobody can take him by surprise. And because all of his work is done in faithfulness, because he loves righteousness and justice, this is really good news, isn't it? Like, we wouldn't want it any other way. We wouldn't want God to abandon history to the whims of people. We wouldn't want that. We're glad that it's God's plans, not man's plans that stand, aren't we? And this truth of God's sovereignty was especially good news to ancient Israel, whom God had chosen and promised to bless and protect. How many times did the nations scheme to destroy Israel? How many times did attacks come against them that seemed like they were going to wipe them away? Isn't it good that God frustrated those plans for the sake of his chosen people? And that's the point of verse 12. Blessed is the nation, Israel, whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And there's more. There's more. Verses 13 to 15 tell us God should be worshipped because he pays attention to the people he's created. He doesn't rule over them in a distant kind of a way. You've maybe had bosses like that before who are making decisions and moving pieces around without paying any attention to how they affect people. That's not God. 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. That includes you. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. That includes that person who hurt you. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. If you hate God, these verses are pretty bad news. But if you're trusting the Lord, isn't this really good news? He sees us. He knows us. And just how amazing is that? How many people can you keep track of at once? Parents? Those of you who worked at camp this summer, 
How many campers could you keep track of at once before your brain started to melt out your ears? Okay? Like, here's, and just think, if you even had for a moment the ability to see all 8 billion or whatever it is people on planet Earth and know exactly what they were doing and thinking and feeling, how long could your brain handle that much information? Like a millisecond before you'd literally explode? But he who fashions the hearts of them all observes all their deeds, verse 15, and it doesn't overwhelm him one bit. So God is to be worshipped because he made all things. He's the king of history. And God is to be worshipped because he knows and sees everything. And that's incredible. As we keep moving through these reasons for worship, why should we worship God? In verse 16, the psalm kind of begins to come to a point. These next verses are a reminder to Israel. In some ways, they're kind of some application. Because God is all-powerful and all-knowing, Israel doesn't need to feel insecure. They, they were not a big nation, surrounded by powerful countries with big armies and lots of horses. And God reminds his people that because he is sovereign, it's what he decides that makes the difference, not their stats. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Human factors don't settle the score at the end of the day. Instead, salvation comes from the Lord who keeps his, <clears throat> who keeps his covenant promises to his people. That's what verses 18 and 19 spell out. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. He pays special attention to the people who tremble at his word. On those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Those were blessings God promised his people in the old covenant. Protection from their enemies, protection from early death, protection from famine. And this psalm is reminding Israel, God can and God will keep those promises because of his great power. So think of all of this sovereignty we've heard, all of this ruling over everything. What this is telling us is that God directs that for the good of his people. It's interesting, in the last 20 years or so, and maybe longer, some Christians have seemed to get bored with this idea. And it's become popular to talk about God who takes risks. It's a romantic idea. I think it comes maybe from Hollywood where we love stories about the hero who throws caution to the wind and recklessly risks everything to save his beloved. That's great when people do that. But God doesn't do that because God can't do that. God can't risk anything by definition. If God frustrates the plans of the people, if it's the plans of his heart that endear to all generations, if God sees everything, knows everything, has power over everything, and rules over everything for the good of his people, then it's impossible for God to ever take a risk. And that's why Psalm 33 and the rest of the Bible celebrates God's steadfast love, not God's reckless love. Singing about God's reckless love is like me singing about my wife's red hair. It's not like it's a bad idea. It's just not true of that person. I doubt Amy would be honored by a song that reflected such 
for attention to who she was. God's people take comfort in his sovereign, steadfast love. As we see verse 20 to 22, our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Think about the stability of a shield that you can hide behind. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name, which God has promised to uphold and defend. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. But I think here we've seen lots of reasons to worship, lots of causes to worship. And now we're in a place to ask our final question, which is how should we worship? In what manner should we worship God if all of this is true of him? The simple answer from Psalm 33 is joyfully. God is honored as his people, verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord. It's not just loud shouts. Ah, no, it's not just noise. It's joyful shouts. He wants us to give him joyful worship. Verse 21, at the end of the psalm, repeats this same theme. So the psalm's kind of bookended this way. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. True worship is glad worship. And I, and I hope that's obvious why that is. Why joy is such an essential part of real worship. Like, can you even imagine real worship without joy? Like, imagine you just did something great, like some accomplishment or whatever, and, and someone comes up to you, and their face is blank, and their voice is monotone, and they say, well, I suppose I'm, guess I'm supposed to say something, so great job, that was wonderful, and then they walk away. How honored would you feel by that? Like, would you really feel like, wow, that, they really honored me there? No, you'd be like, you just did that because you had to. What's, what's the point of that? God is honored by worship that is joyful, which is why the Psalms point us in this direction again and again and again. Just some random quotes here from the Psalms. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with what? Gladness. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. God wants to be worshipped in a joyful way. Now here's what's important. Here's what's so important. Psalm 33 shows us that this joy that honors God is not something that we cook up on our own and then we somehow dump it into our worship of God. Like, you might think, I'm just not a joyful person. There's people who are a little bit more bubbly and that's, that's good for them, you know? Bring your bubbles to church and have fun with that. But I'm just, I'm just not a bubbly person. I don't really do this joy thing. And, or, or maybe think, oh, I need to be joyful, so I'm going to go, you know, do some stuff to hype me up and then I'll come to church and then I'll be all hype, okay? That's not what this is talking about. What has Psalm 33 shown us? It's shown us the joy that honors God is joy that comes from God and from thinking about who he is and what he's done. The joy that honors God is a joy in God. It's a joy that comes when we look up at the Milky Way and think, I know who made that. It's a stirring in our heart when we look out at the ocean and think, this is just a bottle on God's shelf. It's the tremble in our souls when we think about the way that God directs history and has directed every detail in our lives and was there as the unseen hand guiding everything that happened to us, including the hard stuff. 
for his glory and our good. It's thinking about the way that God directs history, that he knows each of the 8 billion people on the planet, including you. And he does not break a sweat as he rules with absolute power over every galaxy, every government, every germ. The joy that honors God is a joy that comes from God, from the truth in God. It's a joy that comes from meditating on who he is and what he's done. So that's why real worship, biblical worship, involves both our heads and our hearts. Which, by the way, is a distinction that the ancient Hebrews didn't have. When they said heart, they meant the whole you. What you felt, what you willed, what you thought. We kind of separate head and heart. And what we're seeing here is worship involves both. What you think and how you feel. It's why the Psalms are one of the richest sources of theology in the Bible. Why Psalm 33 is full of theology. Because it's the truth about God that fuels worship in God. I was thinking about, we have this section in our library called Theology. We should replace that title and it just says worship. Because that's what should happen as you learn about God. You worship Him. I'll never forget one of the first times that I remember really feeling my heart stirred in, in a corporate Sunday morning worship setting. It was at that church where I did overheads. And, and honestly, that was the kind of church where you'd tend to repeat each chorus of every song like 10 times, and then you'd repeat the bridge another 15 times. And, and the goal seemed to be to kind of whip people up into this frenzy of emotion. And honestly, honestly, it felt really exhausting a lot of the time. But one Sunday we were singing a hymn, which I think was fairly unusual, if I remember right. And on the third verse of this hymn, I remember it so clearly, I was maybe 11, and I sang these words. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. And as I sang those words, I saw the beauty of Christ crucified for me. I felt the freedom of the gospel, knowing that I was forgiven. I believed it. And that truth prompted from my soul a response of joy. And I meant what I said when I sang, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. God is honored by the joyful response from his redeemed people to the truth about who he is and what he's done. That's the worship that he seeks. A joyful response to the truth about who he is and what he's done. So let's move to our conclusion here this morning because there's a lot more we could say. There's a lot more we will say in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about music next week. The week after, we're going to talk about the role of lament in worship. We've heard about lament in the Psalms. What does that have to do with worship? Knowing that these Psalms of lament are in Israel's songbook. We're going to think about that. What do we do when our hearts feel dead to God? But for now, here's what we can say. Psalm 33, the worship that God seeks is the joyful response of a believing and obedient heart to the truth about who he is and what he's done. So what does that mean for us? I mean us, like this particular group of redeemed people. What does it mean for our corporate worship here together on Sunday mornings? Before we answer that, I just want to very briefly say, because we want to be responsible here, 
corporate worship is an important activity for the new covenant people of God. Right? We don't just want to take stuff from the New Testament and dump it into our setting without thinking about, about that we're, we're in a new covenant here. But Ephesians 5.19 tells us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Right? So that's very psalm language, and that's for us. So the psalms and much of their teaching on worship, they're for us. God is seeking from us the joyful response of a believing and obedient heart to the truth about who he is and what he's done. So what are some lessons for us here at EBC. I have some suggestions. I want to start here. I wonder if some of us need to be more comfortable being more expressive and enthusiastic in our corporate worship of God. Some of you have been in settings where people are so expressive in their worship of God that they end up attracting lots of attention to themselves, right? They might be thinking about God, but nobody else is because they're just noticing that person. They're trying to dodge, you know? They're worried about their safety. But let's be honest. That's not our problem, by and large, here at EBC. (laughs) It's not. Do you think... Do you think in light of Psalm 33 that God might be pleased with some more volume, some more expression, some more enthusiasm in our worship? Do you think that sometimes we might worry too much about not looking weird, that we end up trying to please people? Now, it's not like we don't want to think about people. This is corporate worship. And that's why I think some people who they might worship God in some really unique ways, you can do that on your own with God. Corporately, together, we worship God and we want to be aware of each other, but we don't want to hold each other back with with expectations that are not biblical. And is it possible we sometimes are worried too much about not looking weird, that we think about ourselves more, we're trying to impress people, and we don't fully give God the response of joy that he deserves. Now again, we want to be balanced here. We don't want to be the kind of church where as soon as the music starts, like Pavlov's dog, everybody's hands goes up because if you don't put up your hand, you're going to look out of place. But we also don't want to be the kind of church where nobody feels like they can ever do that because they're worried about feeling out of place. We don't want to put on a show either way. We don't want to do stuff and not do stuff because we're putting on a show for people. And Psalm 33 this morning is calling us together to not be afraid of giving God the loud, joyful, enthusiastic worship he deserves. Now, for some of you, this might mean starting by actually singing. And maybe singing a little bit louder. And for some of you, it might mean other things. But here's the, here's the really important thing that Psalm 33 has shown us. The way that we get there, the way that we get to more joyful, enthusiastic worship is actually not by thinking about ourselves and our own worship too much. The way that we get there, the f- what's the fuel for enthusiastic worship? It's the truth about God and who he is. See, this is why I actually really struggle with a number of modern 
songs which instead of actually worshiping God are actually just songs about worshiping God. Okay? There's, there's a lot of songs that are all about what we're doing with our hands, what's going on in the room, how we're all feeling, the hype. And, and I wonder if with too much of those, we end up worshiping the worship experience instead of actually worshiping God by talking and singing about him. But I think as we do that, as we focus on the Lord and we feel the freedom to respond to this truth about him, then I think the proper response will come. So I want to encourage you to respond to God perhaps a bit more enthusiastically than you have before. And I want to encourage you to do that by thinking, thinking about the words that we're actually saying. We choose songs carefully here, songs that are full of truth about God, truth that as we think about it with our minds should fuel joyful worship in our hearts. And you may want to, there's certain ways that maybe you want to engage in this way. There are some times on a Sunday morning, I know that if it's a familiar song and I'm just singing it, I go into autopilot. So there's times when I actually stop singing and I just read the words and I go, whoa, that's incredible. And I've sung this for 10 years and never really noticed that. So maybe listening, some of our Sunday morning songs, is actually one of the things that we want to do this year is put together a playlist for Spotify and Apple Music. So some of our songs, especially new songs that we do, you can listen to them at home and think about these words and then come ready to just go, yeah, let's, let's praise God together this way. I encourage you to think, think deeply about the truth of God, not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. Get a theology book out of the library. I hope you're reading God's word throughout the week and actually thinking about what does it say about God. You're giving thoughtful attention as you drive down the road to the things around you and that you know the person who made that. And you are worshiping God with a life of faith and obedience. And then as we each are doing that throughout the week, worshiping God with a life of joyful faith and obedience, then we come together. And that life of worship overflows in joyful, enthusiastic worship as we gather to sing week by week. So we're going to take a moment of quiet here. First, I'm going to pray. We're going to take a moment of quiet. We're just just in in this quietness, just ask God, Lord, how how would you have me respond to the call of Psalm 33 today? Lord, I'm thanking you right now for your word. I thank you for giving us Psalm 33 and this beautiful picture of a call to joyful worship and then reason after reason after reason for why you deserve that. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you help our hearts to respond to this truth that we would think about this sovereign God and say, wow, and we just want to sing. How can we keep from singing? How can we keep from singing your praise? God, could you cause that to happen? Make us deep thinkers, profound feelers who worship you in the way you deserve. Help us respond to you well, Lord. Amen.